I like to say that you're nobody till FTC sues you. And everybody in the Valley basically has um, a 20-year consent decree uh, that all these little egg timers are just ticking at the FTC offices. Well, I'm feeling very left out now. I'll have to uh, put that on my to-do list uh, if I want to be somebody in this world. Hello and welcome to Moderated Content, podcast content about content moderation moderated by me, Evelyn Dueck. Let's say you take over a company and within weeks your chief privacy officer, chief information security officer and chief compliance officer all resign. Oh, and they do so on the same day that your company has a compliance notice due to the Federal Trade Commission under a consent order your company has with the regulator. I would be pretty nervous, but if you're Elon Musk and the company is Twitter, apparently, in the words of Musk's lawyer Alex Spiro, Elon puts rockets into space, he's not afraid of the FTC. So we're here today to discuss whether Musk should be more worried about the FTC than he is, but also consistent with my thesis that you can get a whole JD by just working through all of the issues that the Musk saga raises, I want to take the opportunity to talk about privacy law and the FTC more generally. And I have two fantastic people to do that with. Whitney Merrill is currently the Data Protection Officer and Privacy Counsel at Asana and is a longtime privacy lawyer, having done a stint as an attorney at the FTC as well. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Rihanna Pfefferkorn is one of Stanford's own as a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory and was previously outside counsel for Twitter. Thanks very much for making the big trek across the, the large campus, Rihanna. Thanks for having me. And uh, uh, as former outside counsel to Twitter, I want to make it very clear that none of my comments here are based on any information that I gained in the course of that representation. This is just me reading documents like anybody else can. Excellent. That is fantastic legal practice. You're already one up on uh, Twitter and uh, Twitter's other lawyers, new lawyers now. Okay, so before we jump into the events of the past few weeks, I want to set out the relevant context and go way back to the beginning, which is this 2011 consent order that Twitter signed with the FTC. Um, So, Rihanna, maybe we can start with you. Can you tell us a bit about that? What is the 2011 consent order and what led to it? Sure. So... As a little bit of background, the FTC Act allows the FTC to have oversight over uh, so-called unfair or deceptive trade acts or practices in or affecting commerce. So they can police uh, deceptive representations by companies. They can police unfair practices by companies. And the uh, 2011 consent order that the FTC uh, obtained with Twitter way back in the day was something that they obtained under the deceptive prong of their uh, unfair deceptive acts or practices authority. And the underlying uh, allegations that the FTC asserted were that Twitter had made public-facing statements about how it was doing a great job protecting user privacy and security, but allegedly it had security practices that the FTC said were contrary to those statements, including letting too many staff have access to non-public user information, so uh, IP address, phone number, email address, uh, DMs and protected tweets, as opposed to like public tweets that you mean to have out there on the service, Um, not having strong enough controls for administrative passwords, and not having strong enough restrictions for other administrative access to Twitter systems. And so the FTC alleged that these were security failings that consequently enabled hackers in early 2009 to get into Twitter's systems and take over high-profile Twitter accounts such as Barack Obama's. 
And so that consent order prohibited Twitter from uh, misrepresenting the company's security and privacy practices going forward and required Twitter to implement a comprehensive information security program that was reasonably designed to protect the security, privacy, confidentiality, and integrity of that non-public consumer information that we just talked about. Great. And we'll talk a little bit more in a second about exactly what that looked like, like what obligations the FTC put on Twitter to ensure that it upheld its end of the bargain. But Whitney, I have a question for you first, which is, can you talk a little bit about how common this is across the industry? Is this a, you know, extremely unusual thing? Whoa, Twitter was the subject to a consent order? Or is this something that we see relatively often and is is not so outrageous? Yeah. um, So one of the interesting things about the FTC is generally their investigations are kept private until it comes out that there's a consent order. So they come, they seem to be pretty rare in comparison to the number of cases that are actually investigated internally. I can't remember the the stats that um, Maureen Olhausen, Commissioner Olhausen at the time gave out of how many cases actually became public versus the ones that were being investigated internally. But I would say cases go through a couple of different paths. One, um, you open a case at the FTC You ask them to send you some documents. They come back and they say, here are the documents. You look at them and you go, hmm, they did some wrong, but it's not so bad and it looks like they fixed it. Let's just close out the case because going any further is probably not going to be worth anyone's time. Lesson learned here. The second is you open the case, you look at it, you go, actually, no one did anything wrong. We were wrong here. You close the case. Everyone moves on their merry way. Another option is you open the case. You did some wrong. You want to move forward with some sort of action. Um, And a consent order is kind of like a settlement, right? It's not saying that there's any particular wrongdoing, um, but it is saying, hey, um, given these current facts, you need to do the following things in the future. And the companies are entering into a consent order willingly. Um, They could choose to not go into a consent order. um, And what ultimately happens there is usually litigation. And that is the other path that can be a popular one, which is if you want to challenge the FTC on either the facts of the case or their underlying authority, often it goes to litigation. Okay, so what did Twitter agree to do under the 2011 consent order and what kind of things uh, yeah, what kind of things were they supposed to be doing on an ongoing basis? This was a 20-year commitment, so it was uh, is due to expire in 2031. So what are the kinds of things that they should be doing and keeping on top of? So the 2011 consent order sets forth a number of things that Twitter agreed to do. Um, as I mentioned, they had to design and implement a comprehensive information security program. It was supposed to be appropriate to the size and complexity of the company, which I think is interesting in that that has changed significantly just in recent weeks. Um, and as part of that, they were supposed to designate one or more employees to be responsible for that information security program. They had to identify what kind of risks could come up um, that, and how can they develop something to remediate that and keep that from happening. They had to have uh, reasonable safeguards to control the risks that they had identified, do testing and monitoring of all of their controls. Um, and they had to pick the you know, third party providers if they have all of these other you know outside parties that they have to contract with in order to make the service run that would also do a decent job of protecting and safeguarding uh, user information. Um, and on top of that, every so often they would have to um, submit periodic uh, reports and undergo assessments from outside third party auditors. And um, all of this, as you said, is uh, 
supposed to be ongoing periodically over the course of 20 years. I like to say that you're nobody till FTC sues you. And everybody in the Valley basically has um, a 20-year consent decree uh, that all these little egg timers are just ticking at the FTC offices. Well, I'm feeling very left out now. I'll have to uh, put that on my to-do list uh, if I want to be somebody in this world. Okay, so, you know, 2011 sounds like a long time ago. Surely this consent decree is, uh, is completely irrelevant now. No, we know from May this year that the FTC is very much keeping on top of it and this has serious consequences. So, Rihanna, can you talk a little bit about uh, what we know from May as well? Yeah, so the May order was a modification of the 2011 consent order where it had come out a few years ago that... Twitter had been collecting people's phone numbers in order to use that as um, for security purposes in order, for example, to um, use as a multi-factor authentication uh, mechanism for s- further securing your accounts. Again, they were supposed to do better at security, uh, as told by the FTC originally. So one of the things that they were doing was... Um, helping to secure your accounts through multi-factor authentication, relying on phone numbers. And it came out a few years ago that Twitter had also been using those phone numbers for targeted advertising purposes. And so the FTC said, look, we had told you in the 2011 order, you agreed um, that you would not misrepresent your practices with regard to uh, people's non-public information, such as their phone number. You made these public statements that you were collecting people's phone numbers um, in order to help them secure their accounts. In fact, you were actually doing uh, targeted advertising using those phone numbers. So knock it off. And by the way, here's, you know, an extra modified consent order on top of the one that we had had before that is even more detailed of the, you know, did I stutter kind of variety. Right. (laughs) And so, and that's, you know, a fresh, what, six-month-old order, so very much uh, not stale, and I believe there was $150, uh, $150, yeah, that would be okay, although maybe for Musk right now, that would be a little bit of a, a little bit of a stretch, but $150 million fine that accompanied that. Did you want to add anything yeah, to that? Yeah, you? you know, what I thought was particularly interesting about this order, um, the FTC went after Instagram for something very similar, um, but in this case, the privacy policy of Twitter actually said that they may use contact information for marketing purposes. And the FTC said, given that the disclosure given right at the time of collection was only for security, it actually narrowed the rights under the privacy policy, which shows even more just for those listening who are interested, can you just bury something in a privacy policy and get away with it? They're showing that no, you can't. And I thought that was a particularly like interesting thing about the order because I can anticipate that just-in-time notices and notices at the time of collection are going to be a lot more popular as a result. That is really, really interesting, especially because as Rihanna laid out, the way that the FTC enforces these is not that there's substantive like laws or requirements, but there's this, it's deception about like what you are telling consumers that you will do and then not doing that. So the idea that, you know, you can't be two-faced about it and, and fall back on a privacy policy, that's really interesting. I didn't know that part. Yeah. My, um, and my view here is that and Whitney, let me know if you think this is wrong, is that the FTC has an easier time making assertions under the deception prong than yep. under the unfair prong, at least when it comes to privacy and data security. Uh, Whitney mentioned that there has sometimes been litigation where a company might not agree to uh, settle charges with the FTC and enter into a consent order and will push back against the FTC. And that has happened a few times in recent years. Um, and the 11th Circuit back in 2018 had told the FTC, like, yes, okay, we'll affirm that you do in fact have authority to police 
uh, data security uh, as part of your unfair acts and practices authority. Um, but the way that the FTC was going about it, their consent orders were not spelling out exactly what it was that the FTC considered to be unfair or telling them exactly what these companies would need to do going forward. They're just saying what you did before was unreasonable and what you have to do in the future has to be reasonable. And so what the heck does reasonable mean? And so after that decision, the FTC went back to the drawing board, sort of took to heart that they had had their wrist slapped by the 11th Circuit and really set to work on revising how they spell out in more granular detail what obligations they want to place on companies in those consent orders so that it's not just this vague, you know, do you have notice of what you are or not supposed to do um, situation that a couple of companies had pushed back on in the past. Yeah, one of the other interesting procedural things about the the 2022 consent order is there are, there are three ways that the FTC can generally move forward. They can do an administrative proceeding. They can go through their administrative court to push for settlement. They can go through federal courts. Um, and then they can also refer things to the DOJ to handle with full force and authority. And um, unique to this particular situation, I you know, I... I believe they used the DOJ against Facebook for the $5 billion uh, settlement, but they actually referred this consent order to the DOJ for enforcement. And so in 2022, we're not just, it's not just Twitter dealing with the FTC, it's Twitter also dealing with the DOJ, which is, I have theories on, but there are two, you know, a couple of things that could be happening here, but the DOJ may just simply have more resources to help uh, facilitate enforcement of, of Section Five. And actually, under this order, they said they also found that they violated uh, Privacy Shield, which, while dead as a transfer mechanism, still does technically apply. Uh, you mentioned the $5 billion Facebook fine. I wonder if just you could unpack that a little bit and just remind uh, listeners what that was about. Yeah. So, oh, gosh. Uh, Cambridge Analytica, a um, bunch of data from Facebook was basically used, like, downloaded and used by a quote-unquote research group called Cambridge Analytica that allowed them to do micro-targeted advertisements. Um, as a result of this like breach uh, where Cambridge Analytica was basically downloading all of this user information, um, the FTC entered into the $5 billion consent order. Um, and it was such a high number, in fact, because the FTC was really trying to hold Mark Zuckerberg personally liable for the failings of the company. Um, they were unable to do so at the time because they didn't have the votes. Um, and you could see that in in kind of the dissents that were written. I believe that's where that information comes from. Um, and and so the company was more willing to settle at the much higher number to keep Mark Zuckerberg's liability out of out. Um, but we're seeing now that the FTC is starting to think about personal liability for uh, CEOs um, much more, um, given some recent decisions as well. Okay, excellent. So we're going to come back to that yep. um, and why maybe Musk should should be uh, sweating a little bit more than he is. But all right, so let's, let's uh, sort of set the stage for that, which is, you know, enter Elon Musk. It feels like six billion years ago, but it was, you know, just about a month. Chaos range. Rihanna, can you fill us in on the TikTok of what has happened in the past few weeks that is making the FTC pick up ears and pay attention here. So the ability to actually substantively carry out the demands of the order depends upon there being people at Twitter who are working on securing 
people's private data and implementing security controls uh, within the company. And the first thing that happened as soon as Musk took over was just a massive layoff that I think slashed the company from around like 7,500 employees to about half that. Um, you know, for perspective, even 7,500 employees is smaller than just the number of people that Meta just laid off shortly thereafter. Like the whole company was smaller than the fraction of Meta that got laid off recently. So Twitter's always punched above its weight in terms of um, its influence um, around the world compared to the size and the number of people who are there. Now there are fewer people there. And there were also a bunch of departures of p key people from the C-suite. Um, he got rid of the general counsel who had been navigating this ship through troubled waters for so many years, Vijay Gatti, who's terrific. Um, and shortly thereafter... Um, God, every, every day feels like a month right now. You are correct. But um, on the eve of the date, 14 days after the sale closed to Musk, um, under, under the 22 consent order, um, any, 14 days after any change of control, uh, Twitter would have to file a compliance report uh, about its compliance with its obligations under the order. And so that 14-day date came uh, late last week and literally like around midnight, like the night before, as you mentioned, the chief compliance officer, the chief privacy officer and the chief information security officer all tendered their resignations. Um, so there are fewer people there in the rank and file to just make the site run and protect users and comply with the order. And there are fewer executives and officers there who would be in charge of overseeing uh, the company's compliance. Okay, so obviously entirely speculative, but is it a coincidence that they all resign at midnight the day before uh, a compliance notice is due? I think it's reasonable to infer that there is a connection between those two things. And the reason for that is that the May order says that, that it, these compliance notices have to be executed under penalty of perjury. And so I think it's pretty interesting that the people who might have probably been on the hook, again, under the order for overseeing the company's privacy and data security program, all just left like the night before this had to get filed under penalty of perjury. And I think that gets us into talking about like some differences that we can draw in terms of like what are the legal perils facing various people within Twitter here? I think there's a distinction to draw between are you actually doing the things to protect users that the FTC wants you to do versus like what are you saying? And I think the latter is the easier way for people to get tripped up. Okay, so the next thing we know that happened. There's a there's a leaked Slack message that says that legal is saying that they're shifting the burden to engineers to self-certify compliance with FTC requirements and other laws. And I am just curious, uh, Whitney, as someone that uh, is is you know, do you, can is that a thing? Uh, can you self-certify compliance with an FTC consent order? <laughs> No, um, <laughs> like it, it's such a weird thing that, you know, I guess someone who's not familiar with how these things work might think, oh, yeah, we can just self-certify and everything will be OK and they'll go away. And maybe that's an antiquated view of how you comply with the FTC. Um, I think a lot of companies um, think, oh, yeah, we can self-certify or we have an external third party auditor self-cert like certify for us that we're com in compliance with the FTC order and that gets delivered to the FTC and we move on. But um, an engineer um, 
without knowledge of what that order requires, just doesn't have the the capability. And this is not an insult to the engineer, just wouldn't have all of the knowledge and information to be able to make that kind of statement in the first place. And they shouldn't have to make that type of statement. And um, that's why you have someone usually at a higher level, an, an officer of some sort, you know, collecting all the necessary information to be able to stand behind that and say, we are certifying that we are fulfilling the requirements set out in the order and assuming that that person actually understands what that order says and requires of them. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's such a bizarre situation. And I also think, you know, given what is also happening at the same time this summer with Joe Sullivan, um, you cannot possibly want to be in a position to certify to the FTC that something is true if you don't 100% know it's true. Okay, um, so explain that then. What, what's happening with Joe Sullivan? Yeah, so Joe Sullivan was at Uber, and the Uber was um, under investigation by the FTC again. Um, I think there are I don't I've lost track of how many FTC and Uber related actions are there are, but there are at least two. And at some point during one of the investigations, I believe in 2015, 2016, I don't have the dates in front of me. Um, Uber uh, basically got a ransom uh, request from somebody who had pulled down and accessed a lot of data and said, if you don't give, you know, if you don't give me a certain amount of money, I am going to, uh, you know, release this data. And uh, so basically Uber paid the ransom, hit put it under a bug bounty in order to facilitate it, mostly because they didn't have the ability to pay something in Bitcoin, and um, then did not tell the FTC about it during that investigation. Um, I would say that that information is generally something that is, by default, responsive to a, a CID, which is like a subpoena that the FTC uses to um, uh, request documents. And... Um, because he hid this information from the FTC, and, and the details are a little bit murky, and there's a he said, she said situation going on, um, obviously, because it was just recently litigated. Um, but ultimately, he was found guilty of lying to the FTC um, and for not disclosing to the FTC that they had this ransom. Um, and, and I think that that shows that the FTC really cares that individuals within a company are telling them the truth and not giving that not misrepresenting in any way the the current compliance or ability to you know share responsive information to them if they're under investigation. To add to what Whitney said, I think that um, going back to my comment about. You know, there's obligations that the company may have, which is what Musk's lawyer, who's apparently the head of Twitter legal now, I guess, was trying to say to try and reassure employees like they'd be fine. The FTC order that was filed with the federal court um, is the company's obligation. Yes, that's true, but it's not the whole story. You don't get to lie to the federal government. And there are several different statutes that can come into play there. There's the law against perjuring yourself. So any uh, certification under penalty of perjury is subject to that law. That is a crime to perjure yourself. Independently, you cannot just freestyle lie to the federal government. Making false statements to the federal government is a separate crime. It doesn't have to be something that you make under oath. Um, that's actually the statute that um, Michael Sussman got prosecuted under and ultimately acquitted in the special counsel's uh, investigation. Um, and then the 
law that uh, Joe Sullivan was convicted under just a few weeks ago was uh, obstruction of justice for covering up information from the FTC. So there are all of these different ways that you could get tripped up as an individual, as a low-level employee, as an executive or an officer, CEO, for example, um, that are not dependent upon like, oh, is this only an obligation that runs only to the company as opposed to the people within it? Nobody gets to lie to the government. Right. And Joe Sullivan is still awaiting sentencing, but he faces up to eight years in prison. So these are very serious crimes. Um, And so... The FTC, following all of this, issued a statement saying that it was tracking the developments at Twitter with deep concern. And its spokesperson said, no CEO or company is above the law and companies must follow our consent degrees, surprisingly. Our revised consent order gives us new tools to ensure compliance and we are prepared to use them. Okay, so what happens now? Uh, Whitney, how likely do you think it is that the FTC will investigate Twitter over this? I mean, that statement suggests something. And what What does that kind of investigation look like? Like, what's the timeline? What will we know about it? What happens next? Yeah, I mean, okay. there's one other thing we haven't mentioned that also is playing into the Twitter scandal, which is the Mudge whistleblower complaint that came out after the May 2022 consent order, but after Elon took over that I also think is probably playing into what the FTC is thinking right now. I imagine they already opened another case as it relates to the Mudge, the Mudge whistleblower complaint. And so, and Mudge for those listening was the chief information security officer. He, he kind of had, well, He headed up the security trust functions, Privacy Eng, the CISO, and a few others rolled up into him. But he he left uh, Twitter, or I guess he was fired from Twitter, um, let go from Twitter, and uh, as a result, um, filed a bunch of complaints uh, about their privacy and security practices after he left. Um, But in particular with the FTC, they've definitely opened another case and are looking into whether it violates the May 2022 consent order. They might be looking at whether or not there are separate other issues not related to that underlying consent order that they need to look into and open kind of an additional larger scope of an investigation, which could request additional documents, additional information from individuals involved with that program. Um, In particular... um, Um, In 2021, in November of last year, the FTC came out and said that they were going to expand their criminal referral program to stop and deter corporate crime. And I think this is particularly interesting here because um, they they made this policy statement that they really want to start holding corporations and their executives accountable for crimes that the agency uncovers. And they are aware that they, you know, have civil authority, but that they're going to try and really increase the amount of times that they're referring referring things to the DOJ for corporate crimes, specifically mentioning Joe Sullivan, um, as well as some antitrust matters. But I think given that kind of policy decision that's coming from last year, what we're seeing with Joe Sullivan this year, the whistleblower complaint and then Mudge's statements, I have to imagine that the FTC is really looking at all of their options of what might be possible and who else can help them achieve those goals. Um, Because The FTC has a relatively small budget in comparison to other agencies, and that has been a way that they've been drastically limited in their ability to go after large players. And so if you look at somebody like, 
Elon Musk, who seems to have $44 billion to spare um, on a social media company. Um, and to just set on fire. And apparently. just set on fire. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's it's insane to me. Um, you imagine that he might, you know, spend a lot of time in legal battles. So how can you use your resources accordingly? And I think this is one particular re reason why the FTC probably leveraged the DOJ in that May order, right? That's after the fact that Elon said that he wanted to purchase the company. Um, and, uh, you know, they they knew that, you know, the F that that major, major social media companies like Facebook, et cetera, tend to push back on these things and have a lot more legal resources than other companies do. So um, there's a case going on. I don't know what that looks like or uh, when we're going to hear more about it, but I guarantee they are engaging the FTC pretty regular or engaging Twitter pretty regularly. If there's anyone there to if there's uh, anyone there to respond <laughs> to yeah. their emails, hello, <laughs> just just follow up no on this. They have no comms department <laughs> yeah. apparently either. So right. <laughs> Did you want to weigh in on any of that? Yeah, I mean, I I think the FTC is in an interesting position here. This is a very very fast moving developments where you know I know when you and Alex were talking on Monday, you were like, let's just keep tabs on whether the site is still <laughs> up or not. Like while we're recording this podcast, like you know it's 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 now Wednesday afternoon and like new it's things to still. Happening, yeah. still up, you know. Um, Two-factor authentication is down, but the uh, site is still you up. You know, that's required by the order too. Um, <laughs> but it's an interesting position where I think that this is a unique situation against a unique individual who has taken over this company. Um, Whitney had mentioned that you know a lot of the times companies will agree to settle, and then if they get accused of violating their original consent order, they will often agree to settle that as well. Um, but sometimes companies push back. I think the paragon of somebody who is not going to just roll over and, and settle if there is another accusation of violating you know, the renewed uh, order from May, it's going to be Elon Musk. The man has flouted you know, and, and just laughed in the face of the Securities and Exchange Commission before and just dissed on them publicly even after he and Tesla had both The scariest of the regulators. The scariest <laughs> of the regulators. After they had both like gotten penalized because he tweeted, never tweet, um, that he was going to take uh, Tesla private. And then that turned out not to be true. Um, and so, you know, he does whatever he wants. He doesn't seem to think very highly of the government. And so if there's anybody who's going to just refuse to say like, okay, you guys, we're not going to admit or deny liability. We'll just put this behind us and move on with our lives. It's going to be him. So I think the FTC, if they're going to come at Twitter, they need to come correct. And so that means I think that they're not necessarily going to be looking to enforce for little picky and Mickey Mouse violations of like paperwork type requirements of the order. Like, oh, this filing was due after 180 days and you filed it after 181 or something like that. I think it's going to be that they're going to, as, as, as Whitney said, they may be trying to get documentation or do interviews or whatever in order to try and find out like what are the actual privacy and security feelings that actually affect users and harm users. Like the FTC doesn't have to show actual consumer harm, but like that's what they're there to prevent from happening. And so I think if they sit on their laurels for too long, there is a risk potentially that there might be another incident based on the fact that like the staff there have just been decimated. And so they're just their ability to keep things going and to adequately protect user information may be suffering. Um, and so we don't want another incident to happen. But I think the FTC needs to proceed very carefully because they know they're up against this very like volatile anti-government CEO. That is, a, I think, a very unusual situation for them. 
so that's great. Can we dig in on that? Because I want to pick up on that and make it concrete about like what are the actual harms? Like what's at stake here? Because we're talking about the legal battle and ooh, Musk might be in trouble with the FTC. But I think it's important to make it concrete about why this matters, not just to Musk and for the headlines. But like what is it actually at, at risk here? Like if Twitter isn't complying with this consent order, what's the harm that people could suffer? I mean, if they don't have a comprehensive security and privacy program, you know, we can talk about misuse of of data that should not be used for a particular purpose. We could talk about um, and, and misuses that I think a lot of people have been talking openly is that they're afraid Elon will look at their DMs and ban them from Twitter based on that information. Um, it could be a breach. Um, I, I know that, you know, in Mudge's whistleblower complaint against Twitter, he mentioned that Twitter is not actually deleting user data because they don't know where all the data is. And so as a result, we have, well, you know, if you thought you deleted previous existing data and it's still there, that could be breached. Um, lots of people have private conversations in DMs. What could be leaked there? So that's to me the biggest like fear is that. Yeah, my my email address, my name, my phone number. I care about all those things, but I'm actually really worried for the content data that's been living in more private spaces on the platform. Yeah, and I guess also worth noting that that's not just in the US as well, that this is a, a global thing. Like the data issues and the privacy issues and the security issues are things that people, I guess, globally should be concerned about. Yeah, I mean, obviously the FTC is scary and, and there are lots of reasons why I think the FTC is starting to become a quote-unquote scarier regulator than European regulators. But GDPR, um, you know, the 4% of gross av- uh, annual turnover was the big boogeyman for GDPR because of the fines that could come down. Um, And so we have multiple things that are easy to violate under GDPR that could be going wrong within Twitter. Anything from the inability to delete data, not fulfilling user requests for access or deletion of their data, um, misuse of that data to begin with, right? If if, uh, Twitter employees are accessing that data in a way that they shouldn't, um, data being given or transferred to parties that shouldn't have access to that data to begin with, all of those things could trigger GDPR. Breaches of very, very broad term under GDPR. I think people don't really appreciate how much bigger breach is under GDPR than it is here in the U.S., which generally like is associated with a security breach. But in uh, GDPR land, it could be just a misuse of data. Great. So GDPR is the general data uh, protection, <laughs> protection regulation, regulation yeah. which is Europe's yes, massive, Europe's massive uh, privacy yeah, exactly. uh, regulation. And so you're saying that that's just it's much broader and potentially uh, higher liability under that. Yeah, it, it's mostly going to be civil. We're talking civil penalties. Um, you know, we've seen some large penalties come out against major players, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Google, et cetera, in, in the EU. Um, there's this idea of having a single authority that can actually go after you for violations of GDPR. That's under challenge. So there's this idea that potentially every regulator of every European country could come to you for 4% of gross avenue, uh, annual turnover. Um, we haven't seen that happen in practice. Generally, one regulator like the French Canille, which is their uh, FTC, basically, or the Ireland's DPC, which is, again, their their data protection authority. Um, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see what kind of teeth they come out against Twitter. Um, they tend to be, you know, act for things that are very clear cut 
problems um, or they try to push a particular um I don't know, agenda is probably not the right word, but the popular thing happening right now is they don't like Google ads um, and Google Analytics. And so there have been a lot of actions in under GDPR as it relates to the transfer of data uh, to the U.S. Um, and, and Google Analytics data collection. So we'll see what happens. I don't know. Excellent. The the regulators are, are um, chomping at the bit. Exactly. Yeah. Rubbing their hands, chomping at the bit, all of those metaphors. Rihanna, I wanted to ask you if you had anything to add on like substantive concerns that you might have about security breaches at Twitter that just might make this more real for listeners about things that, you know, why we should care about this beyond the fun or the potential liability. I mean, it seems like Elon's plan for Twitter is like, we're just going to pivot to being some sort of payments focused app like, you know, WeChat in China. And it's like, okay, so your plan is phase one, get rid of all of your privacy and security people by firing them. And or, you know, just telling them, like, you have until 5 p.m. today to, like, decide whether you're with me or not uh, is the latest development. Phase two, add a bunch of payment systems where we're going to collect financial information details from all of these users. And then, like, where's the phase three where, like, those two things connect like in a safe and secure way like if there's any point where like were you just not getting under fire from enough regulators already that you want to bring in everybody who gets involved when it comes to financial payments which i know whitney has had to think about in some of her past roles as well so and and, and you know this is all operating against a background of um Risks from like insider threats, like Whitney mentioned, like, or oh, people are wondering, like, what if alone just goes trolling through people's DMs? But like, there was already a prosecution of a couple, an indictment against a couple of Saudi Arabian employees who were accused of secretly um, spying on Twitter users for Saudi Arabia, um, you know, and, and misusing their access as internal employees within the company. And that's an example of the kind of insider threat. Um, that malicious employees can potentially pose to users. And we've seen this, you know, these kinds of things happen at, at various companies. There was a guy who worked at Yahoo who got convicted uh, for uh, hacking into people's Yahoo accounts in order to look for nude photos of women. Um, these sorts of examples are, are legion. And so it's not even just about, like, is the system going to be secure against external threats, but, like, what are, what are the worries about internal threats? Um, you know, I sort of advocated for like, you know, first thing that alone should have done was end and encrypt DMs, a very, very difficult thing to do, but something that the Saudi Arabia incident sort of pointed up what is at stake in those situations. Whereas you said, we're not just talking when, when we're thinking about who are the users abroad in countries that really, you know, double down and care about like rule of law and democratic practices, but we're talking about uh, people in, you know, all the countries that led to the Arab, Arab Spring uprising where Twitter was an important part of that as well. Um, and people who, if their data is, is released, it's not just a matter of like, oh, I need free credit monitoring for a year. It's a matter of like, am I going to go to jail and get killed? Right. Yeah. For sure. And I think that's a really important thing not to lose here is that um, in some way, like, yes, this is an American thing about the FTC as an American regulator, but these systems, these security processes are important for, for global security and for very real reasons. So thank you. So I want to talk about the broader architecture here of this as privacy regulation consistent again like Elon gives us an, an opportunity to talk about privacy more generally um, so not just focusing on this issue but 
the architecture of privacy regulation and privacy and security regulation in the US, where we've talked about it, that in this case, Twitter was making these representations in its policies that this is how it's going to protect data. There was, you know, breaches of that. And so it entered into this consent order with the regulator around deceptive practices. And then it was breaches of that consent order that is leading to enforcement actions rather than, you know, there is some statute out there that says you may not do, you should not do X, Y, Z with people's data because that would be bad. So Whitney, is this a good example of, you know, an excellent regulatory scheme to protect users' privacy? Like, it seems like there's something happening here where if Twitter does bad things, it may face bad consequences. Is this the system working? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think the the FTC's authority has been broad enough to adapt with change over time, right? Like, the FTC Act is... 1919 or something. 19. I should know this, and I apologize for not knowing this off the top of my head. But it's been around a while, and like if you think about how it's adapting to our technology for enforcement, I'm I'm impressed. 1914. Uh, oh, 14. I was close. Okay. So in that way, you know, I think there are some things working. On the other hand, you know, this deceptive prong has led us to a notice and consent model, right? You can bury things into your privacy statement and therefore you're not deceptive if you do something else. But we're seeing that shift and change. The FTC is adapting to the changes and saying, well, uh, you know, you have to look at the totality of the circumstances. You just can't rely. I mean, it would be nice. I think a lot of us are clamoring for a federal privacy law. We need some general rights and guidance. Um one, I mean, just to handle data breaches alone. We're living in a 53-state regime or, and, and territory regime for data breach notification. It's vastly narrower than what the GDPR requires from a data breach notification. The vast majority of, like... Um, leaks of data that could be harmful, like my private DMs, might not trigger data breach notification laws in the United States um, because a lot of them are tied to usernames and passwords. Um, sensitive information like my driver's license number, my social security number, financial data, credit card information, et cetera, they're not thinking about things like your private messages. So we need to change the laws there because people aren't going to do anything about what they don't know about. And so as a result, the FTC is stuck to only finding out about things, right, For from a privacy or security standpoint, when it either makes the news or somebody tells them about it. Um, and that can be a researcher. There have been researchers at Stanford, I know, um, that have reached out in the past about particular things they've discovered as it relates to consumer protection laws. Um, so I, I think we need more. We need a better framework. And in particular, the FTC you know, some people want there to be another authority. I'm a big fan of the FTC's been working for a really long time. Give them more authority, give them more budget, and let them do their thing. And I think they're going to land in the right direction. Um, that can be pretty controversial depending on who you're talking to. But I think if they had more clarity, they wouldn't have to take such creative measures that you were starting to see come about um, for enforcement. One in particular, I think them leveraging the DOJ. The Joe Sullivan as a statement, I think, is another one. And then most recently, I don't know, a month and a half ago, uh, Drizzly, they, they had a decision against Drizzly, the alcohol delivery app. They had a data breach in... I don't know, like 2016 or something, they held the CEO personally liable for the failures of the security program. And so they're showing that they're going to start holding individuals liable. And that that CEO, of the Drizzly CEO, his name's Corey, he, he will have to implement a, a data security program for every company he leads or has like a C-level title for in the future. And so 
you now have a, a spot on your back, right? I don't know what that means for DNO insurance. <laughs> like, like, and 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 now you're you're starting to see. If I were Elon, I would definitely be worried that the FTC is looking. You've made statements that you don't care about us. You've made statements that you don't believe this order like has any like enforcement, or that you're not as scared as going to space or whatever it was. I sure might think maybe we need to bring Elon personally into the discussion since he privately now he's taken the company private. It seems like there's a lot of pressure on the FTC here, I think, to do something like these statements of no CEO is above the law. Like, I mean, they're going to have to to back that up somehow in this situation where it seems like, you know, the entire security team quit. If the FTC doesn't take action in this case, I think it would raise some questions about like, if, if not here, then when? And you see these, you know, you see these letters from Congress, congressmen, FTC, do something, investigate this thing. And you're like, give them a budget, give them people, give, give, them, give a, them monetary penalty authority from the get go. Right. Monetary penalty. Like people. OK, for those listening, the FTC cannot fine on first offense for the vast majority of the situations that they're in. If it's just unfair, or deceptive practice and that's what you're going for. So deception is the popular one. You cannot just go and issue fines. You have a consent order. I actually think the consent order is scarier because the more you leverage that to enjoin and create certain behavioral requirements on the company, I think the better you are. Um, in comparison with the GDPR, they're just putting out fines. They may be get, issuing guidance and saying, hey, don't do that again. But they're not entering into some sort of like injunction with the company going forward to comply where they have auditing ability. And I think the FTC is really leaning into that, knowing they can't fine and saying, oh, Okay, like let's really make sure you do things like implement a 2FA program that does not require somebody to hand over their phone number. Like that's pretty like specific requirement that was in the May 2022 consent order from the FTC. So I think they have a lot of creative abilities here, but I think they're also going to need some help to do it. Rihanna, do you think this is an example of the system working? Like in, in a perfect world, is this how we would be doing this? Or, you know, do you have a, a wish list of how we might do this somewhat more effectively or efficiently? I mean, I agree with Whitney that it's been impressive to see how the FTC can do so much with what little they've got. Like, kind of like Twitter, actually, like the FTC is really small. There aren't that many people that actually work there for an entity that is the consumer protection watchdog for 330 million people. Um, and so they have had to get creative, I think also in part because, like I mentioned, like after being told by a federal appeals court, like you got to spell out what you mean when you're talking about like proper day, reasonable data security practices. Um, I think that has induced um, the FTC to get a lot more specific, which I think like that level of flexibility is actually helpful in the particular context of privacy and data security because what is a best practice for those things changes all the time. This is a really difficult tight rope to walk um, in regulating those areas because if you are too vague, nobody knows like, well, what, what am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? How far, you know, what's the buffer zone between reasonable and unreasonable data security practices where reasonable is the watchword under the FTC Act, under various states, you know. That's usually the standard. It doesn't really say what it means. If you get too specific in a statute that spells out like, well, you have to do this, 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 and this. Well, time moves on. And what yesterday was a best practice is today, you know, deprecated. And then you're trying to enforce laws that have not kept up with technology, as is, as is usually the case. And so being able to have some amount of, of flexibility, I think, is helpful. Um, with that said, it's been frustrating to see how we keep moving the football down the field and each Congress 
Congress a little bit to get some sort of like national federal level privacy law or data security law. And it just never happens. Like it's also a compliance burden on companies to have to comply with so many different regulators in the room where not only do you have more than 50 uh, state and territorial entities, you have various federal regulators, not just the FTC, but like the Department of Financial Services in New York. If you're a financial company, you have California, you know, has our own little sort of mini GDPRs that we've been trying to pass, um, or at least that billionaires who made their money off of real estate have tried to have gotten passed um, on top of like European regulations, et cetera. And so like to the extent that those could be like streamlined and not be like in conflict or in tension with each other, I think that would be beneficial for companies as well. But this is just such a weird area where unlike a statute that says like, don't murder somebody, don't lie, like do data security good and do privacy good is actually a lot harder. Yeah, I'll also add, you know, unlike other places in the world, EU comes comes to mind, we don't really have a don't do this with data rule. It's kind of up to companies to define what the um, governance policies around the data are. And so as a result, you don't have, you can't sell data. It's more we're putting restrictions on, well, if you sell data, then these are the rights being tacked on on top of it. And what I, I think we a lot of people would like to say is what are certain types of data processing of certain types of data that should not happen, right? Like we need to think through what are things that are just never okay. And I think that would also help from like a federal legislation perspective. What are not okay processing types of data? Like, you know, a popular one in the EU is you you can't ask certain types of sensitive pieces of information as an employer of your employees in the EU. Are there things like that in the U.S.? Can you not do certain things with health data? And we haven't really even gotten that far. We're still in the like, um, well, how do we put restrictions on companies for things they're already doing instead of thinking what are the best practices moving forward? So, okay. Is there anything else that I should have asked you about or that you want to add or subtract or at all comment on before we close out trying to keep up with not just twitter but anything that you know happens in our respective lines of work is so hard like trying to teach or comment on the law having anything to do with the internet is like watching a big wet muddy dog just come bounding into the kitchen and shake itself off vigorously like 15 minutes after you had just mopped the floor as soon as you've gotten on top of recent development, something else happens, you have to go back to the drawing board. And so, you know, this is this is such a rapidly evolving area that I think gives us great job security to keep pontificating program. On, yeah. <laughs> on the podcast forever. Um, yep. And I, I want to plug my friend's bingo card while we're here. Uh, my friend Sumana Haririshwa um, put out a bingo card uh, uh, yesterday, and I think 24 hours later already had to, like, cross off three squares on this bingo card for predictions of what Elon Musk is going to do uh, at Twitter going forward, like instituting a real names policy, making Rudy Giuliani the CTO or the new general counsel, et cetera, or the head of PR, um, getting uh, people to dogpile onto the FTC's Twitter account, et cetera. Um, and that's a, you know, if, if, if you want to have a little fun uh, following along with this ongoing saga at home, the Twitter predictions bingo card is, is a fun one. I like crowdsource moderation with gamification. I, th- I think that's it. We haven't solved content moderation, but it's because we haven't tried that. I think that's definitely going to work. That'll do it. <laughs> I guess my the, the final thing I'll add is, you know, the consent order is just one piece of where everything is going. Um, often with uh, 
a consent order or some sort of action, the commissioners put out statements worth reading those, digging into those. They give a lot of indication about where they're thinking about taking a program. So if you're listening to this and you're in-house at a company and you're going, what do I tell people about what I should be worried about? Or you're a professor teaching it. Look at the, look at, you know, the statements from, you know, the chair or the commissioner is on these particular cases. They kind of give the context about what they're thinking about, what they're hoping to see and where they're going. And I find these to be really helpful and really um, interesting because it shows that they're thinking about this beyond just like unfair and deceptive practices. Well, as Rihanna said, this is moving very quickly. So we need to push this podcast episode into your feed before it gets out of date. (laughs) Um, And then we will wait and see which aspect of platform governance and trusted safety that Musk throws into the spotlight for our next episode. In the meantime, this podcast is available wherever good podcasts are hiding, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and transcripts are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. This episode of Moderated Content was produced by the wonderful Brian Pelletier. Special thanks to Alyssa Ashdown, Justin Fu, and Rob Huffman.